y'all, and welcome to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are living today. We ask, what do our sacred stories have to teach us as white people about our role in resistance? in showing up and in liberation. This live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's song from the Freedom Movement is of a multi-racial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado in December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use this song for the podcast. Hey everybody, my name is Drew Bongiovanni, My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I'm a clergy person, ordained in the Alliance of Baptist Tradition. I'm speaking to you from the stolen Muskogee lands that are also referred to as Atlanta, Georgia. I work here as a chaplain with Emory University Healthcare. This podcast is designed with white listeners in mind. It is, of course, for anyone and everyone to listen to. And we deeply value feedback from listeners of color and those of diverse faith traditions. But we are acknowledging that we white folks have extra work to do. It is our responsibility to learn how to resist the forces of white supremacy that we are complicit with. This podcast is about using our religious teachings to help us in the work of resisting whiteness. You are joining me for our continued series called Journeys to Freedom, where we follow the lectionary texts of ordinary time. And although our times feel anything but ordinary to us, I'm also struck by how the events that are being played out before our eyes are anything but new. We are witnessing the repeated events of oppression the silencing of those who rise up, the concentrating of power among corrupt rulers, the toxic fingers of white supremacy, none of these are new. And in this time of pandemic, we are seeing what has truly been there all along, maybe just more clearly. And as we do this work together, we learn together to create new understandings of what has been where we as white people have previously turned away our gaze. So we look back to ancient texts together to see what they can speak to us in our times today, to see what wisdom they can confer from those human ancestors who walked the path before us. So before we dive into our text today, I thought I'd share a favorite poem of mine, Kindness, by Palestinian-American poet Naomi Shihab Nye. Friends, take a deep, grounding breath as we turn to reflect and dream together. Kindness by Naomi Shahab Nye. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, All this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. 
How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you. How he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all the sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to gaze at bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. The text in our lectionary today is the 45th chapter of Genesis and part of the story of Joseph. Now, if you listened to our podcast last week, you heard Seth profoundly talk about the beginning of the Joseph story in chapter 37. Now, a lot has happened to Joseph between the beginning of his story and where we find him today. And our lectionary text just gives us a slice, so I'll recap some of the key points leading up to where we find Joseph in the story. Joseph interprets the dreams of Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, and tells him that there will be seven years of abundant harvest and seven years of famine. Joseph is promoted by Pharaoh to a second-in-command position with great authority over the land of Egypt. Under Joseph's command, Egypt stores food to prepare for the seven years of famine, and during the famine, Egypt begins to sell grain stores to those in need. Joseph's family, his brothers, who you remember betrayed him and sold him into slavery, travel to Egypt to buy grain. His brother Benjamin and his dad Jacob stay behind. Joseph recognizes his brothers when they come to buy grain, but they don't recognize him anymore, and he knows that he needs to figure out if he can trust them or not. So he accuses them of being spies and tells them to bring him their youngest brother, or else he will imprison them. Joseph's brothers return with Benjamin, and so far they are honest and do what they promise. Joseph plants his silver cup in Benjamin's bag to frame him as a thief. When he does so, Joseph's oldest brother says, Spare my brother Benjamin, because my father will die of grief without him, and imprison me instead. All of this happens, and that leads us up to to our text today, chapter 45, verse 1 through 45 through 15. I'll be reading from the Common English Bible translation. Joseph could no longer control himself in front of all his attendants, so he declared, Everyone, leave now. 
so no one stayed with him when he revealed his identity to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians and Pharaoh's household heard him. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father really still alive? His brothers couldn't respond because they were terrified before him. Joseph said to his brothers, come closer to me. And they moved closer. He said, I'm your brother, Joseph, the one you sold to Egypt. Now don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves that you sold me here. Actually, God sent me before you to save lives. We've already had two years of famine in the land, and there are five years left without planting or harvesting. God sent me before you to make sure you'd survive and to rescue your lives in this amazing way. You didn't send me here. It was God who made me a father to Pharaoh, master of his entire household, and ruler of the whole land of Egypt. Hurry, go back to your father. Tell him this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me a master of all of Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. You may live in the land of Goshen, so you will be near me. Your children, your grandchildren, your flocks, your herds, everyone with you. I will support you there so you, your household, and everyone with you won't starve, since the famine will still last five years. You and my brother Benjamin have seen with your own eyes that I'm speaking to you. Tell my father about my power in Egypt and about everything you've seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. He threw his arms around his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his shoulder. He kissed all of his brothers and wept, embracing them. After that, his brothers were finally able to talk to him. Most of the time, when we look at commentaries about this story, it's described as a text about reconciliation. Reconciliation being the work of repairing relationships after harm has been done. The work of forgiveness and peace building. And that is all well and good, but for me, this text is far more about gut-wrenching grief and trauma than it is about reconciliation. I'll be the first to say that I might come to that conclusion because at this point in time, it's pretty tough for me to think about reconciliation. In this moment, we are witnessing despotic rulers openly, fragrantly advertise how little they care about vulnerable people and communities of color. We're witnessing how over and over again, white people put their own selfish interests ahead of caring for their neighbors. And I am left angry and agonized and worried for people I care about. So I'm not ready to make nice. Not yet, anyway. And I think we miss a lot of the importance of this text if we think that that's all Joseph is feeling at this moment, is to make nice and move on. Before we get to any moment of reconciliation for Joseph, we have to see his pain and his anger and his sadness. Each time, in fact, that he sees his long estranged brothers, the ones who sold him into slavery and left him for dead, he weeps. He goes off to a room alone and weeps so loudly that everyone is stopped in their tracks by the sound of his sobs. And Joseph's cries are not simply about seeing his family that he missed. 
No, this is an expression of Joseph's trauma, his feelings of betrayal, his feeling about what should have been for his life and what was taken from him. And y'all, we aren't great about grief. We often think of grief as this uncomfortable, inconveniencing emotion that we must get past it and get over it. And I wonder if this is yet another way whiteness shows up in our lives. Whiteness places a premium on power and control as necessary for life. Whiteness extends to power and control over our own emotional state, leading us to struggle so much to acknowledge and companion with painful emotions where we feel out of control and helpless. In this text, we see how necessary it is for Joseph to make his feelings known and for his brothers to bear witness to what they have done to him. They must receive his grief and anger as part of their access back into his life. From my time working as a community organizer, I learned the value of relationship and story as the bedrock of getting any work done. When building campaigns and teams, we would begin with one-on-one meetings, telling one another a little bit about what had brought us to this place. The exchange of story, of vulnerably sharing a bit of ourselves with the other person, built up a sense of trust, and more importantly, love, between two people from a broad intersection of life. This is what fueled our ability to make change. And so in this moment of movement building, there is still so much trust and relationship to be built. There is shame and fear among us white folks, especially beginning the work of dismantling white supremacy in our lives and our communities. There is weariness and anger and trauma among people of color who have been working all along and yet their cries for urgency were dismissed. Too often the work of reconciliation is distilled down to emotions that let us feel comfortable and safe. The emotions of forgiveness, absolution, happiness, and to focus only on these emotions of comfort and relief is to erase the very real marks of pain and trauma and grief that remain when people have been hurt and oppressed. Reconciliation becomes one-dimensional and hollow if it erases the consequences of harm done and presents relationships as somehow starting over from scratch. Real relationships never do that. Rather, our relationships look like the strata of excavated earth, chapters of history overlapping one another, layering and building up a foundation. We remain formed and shaped and sometimes haunted by what has happened to us and what we have done to others. And we have to tell the truth about that. As a white person, I can reflect on what it's like for Joseph, but I can never really know. As a white person, I know that my place in this story lies with Joseph's brothers, those who have done so much harm in his life. And what I find most important about their role is that they never try to argue against Joseph. They don't plead a case to justify what really happened in the past. 
They don't deny Joseph. They don't pretend to know to not know who he is. There's no whataboutism or dismissal. They simply receive Joseph's deep grief and listen to what he has to say to them. And we as white folks, to truly rebuild relationships with those we have harmed, our job is to bear witness to grief and anger. We must center the grief of those most impacted by our actions. And we do this work regardless of if we ever receive reconciliation or not. Some harm is simply too great. When Joseph reveals his identity to his brothers, he offers them an explanation that feels all too familiar. He proclaims that this was God's design all along, that he was sent ahead so that he would be able to save others and to save his family. My first reaction to this is about the same as my reaction to the word reconciliation. I'm not so sure. As a chaplain, I often meet people who have been so diminished by being told that their suffering is somehow part of God's plan. This reminds me of Miguel de la Torre's Embracing Hopelessness. In his book, de la Torre shows us how salvation history, the framework that God is leading us throughout history to hopefully a better future, is a construction of empire and oppressor that leads us to ignore the suffering and death of the oppressed in the past and the present. Dilatory demands that we level with the question of where God was for centuries of people who lived and died in pain. He names the necessity of being able to level with a God who sometimes forsakes us, who is absent when communities suffer, who does not save. He discusses that white folks in particular must stand with the oppressed rather than reading the narrative of their own privilege as a sign of God at work. He says of the value of hopelessness, to be hopeless is a desperation of refusing to give up, a recognition that even if carrying the cross leads to crucifixion, the struggle for justice is what defines the present and could plant seeds that might blossom in some future. Fruit might someday be born, but that is inconsequential for those suffering in the now. And while there is nothing redemptive in present suffering, nevertheless, it marks a refusal of complicity with the inhumanity undergirding oppression. Joseph doesn't need to redeem his suffering, and certainly not for his brother's sakes. But he does say, look, here's how I can help people. And after all that has happened to me, the least we can do is to join Joseph in his cause, to meet people in the now, and refuse to be complicit with the mechanisms of oppression that only look for future hope. It's not lost on me that what enables this entire moment of reconciliation to happen is a famine. Joseph's moment of reunification with his family 
expressing his grief and anger, finding a way to be in solidarity with others who are suffering. None of that happens during the time of abundance, but rather a time of fear and desperation and uncertainty. And that seems to resonate for me in the moment we are in too. As fires of pandemic, white supremacist violence, wealth disparity and climate crisis wage on, we see revealed more and more starkly around us the truth of whom we have hurt and how we have hurt them. Laid ahead for us is only the possibility of reckoning, of bearing witness, of telling the truth, and getting to work to repair our harm. Joseph's brothers must lose their power and privilege. They're hungry and without food. In order for them to face the truth of their actions and earn Joseph's reconciliation. It's hard to imagine Joseph receiving his brothers as long as they could still threaten his life and liberty. Joseph waits until he has been assured that they have changed as people. And when he sees Reuben's willingness to put his own life and liberty to save Benjamin, this is the task for us white folks, to put aside our power that distorts relationships and dehumanizes us, to witness to the grief and pain of those who are hurt, to get comfortable with our own vulnerability and grief and shame, to take steps toward a new world, and to do so while listening to those sharing their pain. This is how we get out of the famine of white supremacy. Ultimately, it's Joseph's brother's willingness to not let history repeat itself, to acknowledge that they must protect their brother Benjamin, that opens up their road to liberation. Even as they have lost the power and control that they had to have wealth and food, they show up to do what they know is right. For us white folks, we have to learn that when we are willing to lose our oppressive power, our version of history, our control, our pride, what we get back is a relationship with God, ourselves, and our communities. It is maybe then, as Joseph said after all, the dreamer went ahead of us and saved lives and used their position to show others the way. God opened the ears and hearts and minds of privileged people to truly receive the message from the voices of the oppressed. It is now up to us to hear what God has to say. Friends, if you're listening to this podcast, I probably don't need to tell you that the political situation we find ourselves in right now is serious, and we need everyone to be doing their part. For, for white folks, we've heard time and time again from movement leaders of color, y'all go get your people. We need white folks to be committing to anti-racist work and undermining white supremacy. I'm proud to be a member of Showing Up for Racial Justice because this exact, is exactly what Surge is trying to do. We are doing amazing work in 2020, and we need y'all's help. If you are committed to getting white folks on board for dismantling white supremacy, please make a donation to Surge. And we split every donation with a movement partner doing amazing work. This month, that organization is Soul Force. You can donate on, online 
at bit.ly backslash S-U-R-J-S-F or find our podcast page at showingupforracialjustice.org. Thanks for helping support this podcast and organizing white people to show up for racial justice and the new world we're building together. If you want to receive updates from Surge Faith, we have a newsletter. Sign up at bit.ly backslash Surge Faith Sign Up. Our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on the word is resistance. You can respond to the podcast by commenting there or on our Facebook or Twitter accounts. Give us a like or rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to, to our podcast. Transcripts are available as well on our website, which includes references, resources, and links. Finally, a huge thanks, as always, to our sound editor for this week, Max Pearl. Thank you so much for listening and journeying with me today. Peace to you, beloveds. (laughs) 